everybody needs a writing utensil. They are up here. As we are, as you can see, we're going to be starting a new study this evening the, um, called Salt and Light. It's a study of biblical metaphors in the Christian life. Hey, let's see what to I need some helpers. You want to volunteer? Can I help, Joe? That's two for you. For you, two for you, and two for you. Oh. <laughs> okay. I think Aunt Abby needs one, Joe. I think Aunt Abby needs one. Aunt Abby needs one. Okay. I think everybody's got one now. Good job, Mike. Can't go back and sit with mom. Good job. Practice for the future ushering crew. Uh, <laughs> that visible enough to everybody without turning the lights off? The background's somewhat light, so you see it that way. So, so the first uh, lesson tonight is on salt and light, actually. Um, <clears throat> so let's just some, give you a little bit of idea of some of the things we'll be looking at. Um, of course, lesson one is a salt and light in our world. Lesson two is a farmer in God's harvest. Lesson three is a student of God's word. Lesson four is a soldier. Lesson five is a runner in the Christian race. Number lesson six is a sheep in Christ's flock. Lesson seven is a sheep in Christ's care. Lesson eight is a disciple of Christ. Lesson nine is the bride of Christ. Lesson 10 is the servant of Christ. Lesson 11 is a friend to others. 12 is a child of the heavenly father. And then 13 is an ambassador for Christ. So um, some interesting things to be looking at. Definitely kind of a different study than we were doing. Um, but one tonight is salt and light in our world. And it is a different, as you'll notice, um, it's a different author than the one we had looked at before. Um, so it's kind of a different, a little bit of a different style, format with writing. There's a lot more illustrations and stories and stuff in this, um, um, in this particular study here, which is, um, I'm not saying this one's right and the other one's wrong, or the other one's right and this is wrong. It's just different styles, different men, how they put things together. Um, so it's good to have some variety sometimes. Um, so our text for the verses, um, text verses this evening is actually Matthew 5, um, verses 13 to 16. I'll go ahead and read those um, to start us off tonight. Matthew 5, 13 to 16 says, Ye are the salt of the earth. And actually, I was looking at this back up a minute. Um, who is it Jesus actually talking to? He's talking to his disciples. If you go back to the first one or two verses here, he's not just talking to multitudes. 
It says, he was talking to them, sent them away, and spoke to his disciples, the Sermon on the Mount here. So this is who he's talking to. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now, Jesus used two simple objects here to illustrate our role as Christians, salt and light, and both of them have unique qualities and fulfill important functions that should be demonstrated by Christians in our world today. Now, God has given us the privilege of representing Him, and by understanding the basic functions of salt and light, and by applying those attributes then to our daily lives, we can use those to help fulfill God's purpose in our life of bringing others to Him. Um, so some goals for this evening um, is, number one, just we'll, we'll look at the basic purposes of salt and light. Number two is understanding how salt and light relate to us and bringing others to the Lord. And then three, that we would choose to be a savory Christian who walks close enough to the Lord to reflect His light. So can I, that's kind of some goals for this evening. So getting into the lesson itself here, you know, the Lord often used common illustrations to teach great truths, like this, salt and light. You know, in Matthew 5, 13 to 16, He tells His people that they're the salt of the earth and the light of the world. No, both salt and light have a beneficial change. They make positive differences with what, as just their makeup and what they do. No, God desires for us to also make a positive difference, to have a real and lasting impact for His glory. But for that beneficial change to occur, the salt must not remain in the shaker, and the light must not be hidden. Likewise, the qualities of light and salt in our lives should be manifested and not hidden or diluted. God wants us to make a difference in this world as Jesus did. The Bible says in Acts 10.38 that Jesus went about doing good. And in 1 Peter 2.21, he reminds us that we're to follow his steps, as Peter talks about there. 1 John 4.17 says that as he is, so are we in this world, we should be. So now as we kind of get in here and study these qualities of salt and light, let it, with the prayer is that we can better understand the ways that God commands us to make a difference in the lives of others. And I don't think we prayed yet, so let's go ahead and pray before we uh, jump in here. Lord, I do thank you for the lesson this evening. Thank you for the, the, the challenge it was to me um, reading it in pre preparation for, for tonight. And I pray that it would be a challenge to, um, to others as well, that... Um, of just being salt and light and what it does, and that we would be um, have the qualities of salt and light to those around us. And I ask you just to please take me out of the way and let your word shine forth in things this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. So main point A, well, main point one, these should be very easy to get. There you go. Of course, you can't hardly see that right there, but it is salt. 
<clears throat> and I bet you cannot figure out what point two is. Now, every cook needs some basic spices to produce a desirable meal. Now, there's, I have no idea how many, but there's probably hundreds of spices, probably. Think of all the different cultures and time from around the world. But really, think about it. Salt is probably one spice that just about everybody, every cook uses consistently. Could you even use salt to cook pasta to give it some flavoring in the water? And in Matthew 5 here, our Lord uses salt here to illustrate the effect his people should have in the world. And as we look at its qualities, let's get, hopefully we'll gain some more understanding of you're the salt of the earth. So subpoint A, salt, um, this starts with a P, I, not purifies, all these start with a P, it is preserves, yep, salt preserves. The goal of preservation is twofold, to seal the good and to shut out the impurities or decay. And salt as a preserving agent keeps food from spoilage. If you open a jar of homemade strawberry jam, you don't expect to see a layer of mold or fungus on the top because the seal protects the jam from what might cause corruption, right? Today with refrigerators and freezers as well as food loaded with preservatives, we don't really un much understand much today the idea of salt as like a preservative. Um, but in Bible days, however, salt was a necessary and frequently used preservative. It goes back to um, in Nehemiah chapter 13, um, interesting situation here. This is, uh, it records the story of the men of Tyre who brought their fish to sell at Jerusalem. Kind of an interesting situation. Remember Nehemiah? And Nehemiah, of course, shuts them out and doesn't let them in. But the distance from Tyre, if you can remember where that is, that's kind of up the coast, north, kind of east. Of course, Jerusalem's down by the Dead Sea. So by the crow flies, that's almost 100 miles, which obviously by the time you go all the trails and go everything, I'm sure it's more, a lot more than that. How would have you like to carry a load of dead fish 100 miles under the hot sun of the Middle East and then try and sell it? How did they keep it from spoiling? They used salt to preserve it, probably from the Mediterranean to preserve it until they could sell it at Jerusalem. Again, salt was an important aspect. And in the early days of America, settlers used salt to preserve meat a lot. They didn't have grocery stores and meat markets, and if they wanted meat, of course, you had to go out and shoot it and then dress it or gut it. And then they would rub it thoroughly with salt and hang it over a fire in the smokehouse to dry. It would preserve the meat and keep it for months, allow them to do that. Now, as Christians, God wants us to act as an agent of preservation in this world. You know, we live in a very evil and corrupt world, but um, authors here says, yet I believe God is mercifully withholding his final judgment because there's still some people who love him and desire to make a difference for him. Think of back to Genesis with Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, you know, in spite of the wickedness that was there, God said he would spare it for how many? Ten. Ten righteous people would have preserved the cities from the wrath of God there at that point. Just ten. Out of whom, how many thousands maybe? Numbers that we don't know. So let's live righteously before God. 
and help others be right with God so we can, there can be more salt in this world. Illustration here is that in Roman times, salt was so important for preserving food that soldiers were sometimes paid in salt. Now, that's where the phrase, a man's worth of salt, comes from. A salty Christian will help protect himself, his family, and his church from the damaging influences of the world. Salt will help to thwart the entrance of sin or compromise that brings about an undesirable change in the life of believers' family. Now, there's a lot of passages that command us to guard ourselves against the damages of sin. Jesus instructed in Mark 9:50, "Have salt in yourselves." It's kind of an interesting statement. The characteristic of salt in our lives will preserve us, keeping us from sin in a life that displeases God. And there's a number of verses here that should be on your sheet, so we'll go ahead and start with James 1.27. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to keep himself unspotted from the world. Proverbs 4.23. Keep thy heart out of this, for out of it are the issues of life. Psalm 34.13. Keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking God. And then it's 1 Timothy 6.20. Keep that which is committed to thy trust. First Timothy 5.22. Neither be partaker of other men's sins. Keep thyself pure. First John 5.21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. A lot of verses talking about preservation and keeping from sin in our life. So we've so got subpoint A, salt preserves, and now subpoint B, salt. Ben said already. Purifies. Yep. Salt purifies. So kind of to an illustration here. It says, a friend once told me about a huge head of broccoli about the size of a soccer ball he cut from his garden. That's a big head of broccoli. Upon the instructions of his wife, he immersed it in a solution of salt water. Over an hour later, he took the broccoli out of the salt water and rinsed it thoroughly. He was quite surprised to see that about a of course, a dozen green worms about of various sizes and various stages of death had come out of the broccoli. Salt purifies, which it does. Salt water purifies by killing germs. That's why gargling with warm salt water can often hook your throat if you're sick. If you don't throw it up after the fact. <laughs> it says, no matter where we are or what we're doing, God expects us to have a purifying influence. The spiritual environment ought to be cleaner and more wholesome because we are there, because you're there, because I'm there. So what kind of influence do you have on those around you? Are people directed toward God by your presence, or are they dragged down? When you walk into a room, does it gain a godlier atmosphere, <laughs> or does the spiritual temperature drop? Interesting things to think about. Now, as Christians, we're purified through time spent with God and His Word. That's one way. The Bible gives several illustrations of those who have fulfilled the purifying role of salt because of their time in God's presence. We've actually been looking at this recently in Exodus 34. Um, 29 to 35 tells how the face of Moses glowed when he descended from Mount Sinai after being in the presence of God. He was unaware of this glow until the people told him. Now Moses was different in a way that he didn't even realize 
No, because he had spent intense personal time with God himself. That example there. Now, Peter and John, they were changed men because of their intimate walk with the Lord. Acts 4.13, this is when they, uh, I think this is the situation with the lame man, after they healed him in, Act, in Acts 4. Now, when they saw, this is the, when they were on trial, after they got arrested by the Jewish leaders. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Can others tell that you've been with Jesus? Now, in the Philippian jail, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. It's kind of an interesting last little phrase, which makes sense, obviously, if you think about it. The prisoners heard them. Now, jail can be a gloomy and fearful place, so I've heard or experienced it here. According to the author, I haven't either, thankfully. And yet the presence of God in the lives of his people completely transformed the atmosphere. Now, when God sent the earthquake, instead of escaping, it's kind of interesting, you'd think everybody would run as soon as they had the chance. Apparently they stayed. Maybe to hear perhaps to hear the word of God. Remember the jailer was going to kill himself, but Paul said, we're all here. The jailer, of course, himself believed after that and was saved. And now even as Paul and Silas were suffering physically, they were a purifying influence in jail. Now do you have a purifying, cleansing influence in your daily life. You cannot have a positive spiritual influence on others if your life is not clean. It's hard to take that which is dirty and use it to make something clean. When we wash dishes, we don't start with dirty water. When we wash our car, do you start with dirty sponges? You don't. Of course not. And so God, as he desires for us to have a purifying and influence on the world, needs our lives to be pure and clean to do that. Now, living a clean life will only occur if we choose to do it. It doesn't happen by default. It's not easy in a filthy, corrupt world to make that choice, but it's necessary. Um, Titus 2.14 um, says, um, kind of at the end of the verse, talking about the Lord, that he gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Now, people who desire to live clean lives and refuse to participate in this world's sinful pleasures are indeed considered peculiar, weird, odd. Now, James 4.8 reminds us, draw nigh to God, and he'll draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Proverbs 4.23 says, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. What, this is kind of convicting. What comes out in your life is a direct result of what's in your heart. <laughs> and so that wrong reaction, that wrong thought, you know, that wrong word that you say, it's what's in our hearts comes out times. Are you careful to feed your heart and your mind with clean and godly influences so that God can use your life to be a purifying and cleansing influence to those around you? An illustration here, this is interesting. It says, during the Civil War, the medical staff of the Confederate armies often found themselves without the necessary medical and pharmaceutical resources they needed. 
they were forced to resort to rudimentary medical treatments to, in their attempts to save the lives of wounded soldiers. Gangrene was a constant threat um, for a soldier who'd been shot. The medics found, however, that if they could immediately get salt in the wound, the gangrene might be prevented. Some surgeons would pull a piece of cloth saturated with salt through the wound in an attempt to retard potential infection. That hurts. <laughs> Sounds like that hurts. Think about it. This is next one's even more interesting. It says, during the great days of the English Navy, sailors who had been flogged for disobedience would have salt rubbed into their open wounds to clean the wounds and speed the healing process. Sometimes they would actually be tied to a rope and pushed overboard into the sea so the salt water would get in their wounds. If the seas were too rough for this, they might be lowered headfirst into a barrel of brine instead. Although one goal of this process was healing, so flog salt sailors could get back to work as quickly as possible, it seems likely that the agony of the salt treatment would serve as a further deterrent for the disobedience. So salt purifies the wounds as well as the behavior. It's an interesting thought. Purifies the wounds as well as the behavior. So subpoint C here. We have uh, salts, getting back to them. First two, salt, I think it was preserves, salt purifies, and now salt. Got it. I was getting ready to give a hint, didn't even have to there. Without salt, foods would be bland. Job 6 6, that's the next verse on the sheet there. Can that which is unsavory be eaten without salt? Another illustration, when, while attending Bible college, I worked as a cook for a family restaurant in St. John, Indiana, called Traveler's Restaurant. As I was learning my new job, I was more of a cook's helper than an actual cook. A chef would come in in the morning and, I, and do the major cooking of the sauces and soups and main entrees for the day. So I still remember two of those chefs, Eddie and Jack. Those are names for chefs. On a shelf right above the stove was a container that held a mixture of salt and small amounts of pepper and garlic. It seemed as though pinches or dashes of this mixture was used in virtually everything that Eddie and Jack made. I soon learned that the addition of these spices created a pungency that pleased the palate. Most people keep their salt shakers handy as they eat, and they don't hesitate to sprinkle it freely on their foods, especially if your last name is Reader. <laughs> Many even add salt to fries from McDonald's or In-N-Out Burger, which is a favorite Southern California burger chain, even though they're already heavily salted. God's people are also to please. We can be a great encouragement to others by using our words appropriately saying the right thing at the right time. You know, this can be a very sad and difficult world that we live in. When people need a smile and a kind word, can they count on you for it? I've often been encouraged by the words of other people, and I want God to use me in the same way. Um, it's a challenge, definitely there. Proverbs twenty-five, eleven. It's the next verse on there, so whoever is next on there. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. Proverbs fifteen twenty three. 
man hath joy by the answer of his mouth. And the word spoken in due season, how good is it. Isaiah 50, verse 4. The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. We've all heard the statement, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Which is interesting, whoever came up with that. Kind of an interesting false statement. Because, because we know from personal experiences that that's not a true statement. Words hurt. Words are powerful, but they can also hurt. Because Think of Adolf Hitler. Because he led the German people down a path of destruction during the 30s and into World War II. And he brought untold misery to many millions, primarily through the power of his words. On the other hand, Winston Churchill used his words to inspire the British people to maintain hope and fight the Nazi menace during the dark days in 1940 when Britain stood alone and all seemed helpless to them. The words that come out of our mouths are flavored by the condition of our heart. That's another challenging statement. The words that come out of our mouth are flavored by the condition of our heart. Matthew 12, 34. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. If our hearts are what they ought to be, we'll say what we ought to say. When our heart's right, God can use our words to be an encouragement and a means of helping others grow. Proverbs 16, 21-24. The wise of heart shall be called prudent, and the sweetness of the lips increaseth learning. Understanding is a wellspring of life unto him that have it, but the instruction of fools is folly. The heart of the wise teacheth his mouth, and adds learning to his lips. Pleasant words are as in honeycomb, sweet to the soul, and health to the bones. Now this, on the subpoint B, we had salt, I think it's preserves, purifies, and pleases, and now um, subpoint B, salt. Might not necessarily think of this. But it, it does, salt does do this. Five letter word, it's a verb. PR, first two letters. Salt prods. We've all heard the statement you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. It's only partially true. You can't make a horse drink, but you can make him want to drink by giving him salt. Farmers with livestock provide salt blocks, you know, big ones, maybe 25 or 50 pounds for their animals. The livestock have a natural craving for their salt, and it creates a thirst as well. The early American settlers made good use of salt in their hunting. Instead of walking through the woods just hoping to see a deer, they often would hide themselves near a salt lick. This was a natural deposit of exposed salt they knew would attract deer. As the deer came to lick the salt, they could get an easy shot. It wasn't baiting because it was natural. <laughs> now, as God's people, our saltiness for God attracts others to Him. If we have a peace, joy, and a strength that carries us through all circumstances, others will want what we have. God uses us to create a thirst in them so they too can know the one who gives them the living water so that they never thirst again. He uses us to create the thirst and direct them to him who has the water. John 4, 13 to 14. 
Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water, water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Okay, on to the second point. First one was salt. The second one is, it is light. That is correct. That is not a very light word up there. So not only are we the salt of the earth, we're also the light of the world. God has placed us in a dark world, and we're to reflect the light of Jesus, who is the light of the world. John 8, 12. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The intensity of the darkness around us makes great our responsibility to be the bearers and keepers of God's light. So subpoint A, light something, and actually these all start with a different letter, so um, it's not all the same. This starts with an A. Light. Light attracts. That is correct. Next time you go to a nighttime ball game, look up at the giant bank of lights illuminating the field. You will see untold multitudes of insects all getting to watch the game for free. They were attracted by the lights from miles around. Years ago, the preacher John Wesley, whose light attracted many others, summed up his ministry like this. I light myself on fire and people come to watch me burn. I think that was a figurative statement and not a literal statement. Um, think of guys like Wesley, Whitfield Edwards, of course, many others we could name who were lights for God. You know, God tells us to make our lights visible. Matthew 5, 16. <laughs> Let your light... So shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. Some think that the lifestyle of a monk or a nun that's shut away from the world is the way to truly live for God. Um, church history tells us of a group of men called the Anchorites who lived in the 4th century. It says they dwelt in solitude, fasted, and injured their bodies. It says the nearer they could bring themselves to the level of the animals, the better pleased they were. One sect of the Anchorites actually grazed with the common herds in the field of Mesopotamia, and they were, thence they were called Baskoi, or shepherds. They acquired a great reputation for holiness because of their mournful attitude toward life. One of the most famous of these monks was Simeon Stylites from AD 395 to 451, so-called from his standing for years on top of a column 60 feet high until his muscles became rigid. Some of these hermits hung weights on their bodies, others kept themselves in cages, and all endeavored to make themselves holy through being miserable. It says the motive of these men may have been truly honorable, a desire to escape from the vices of the great cities, but the greater the corruption of society, the more need for holy men and women to live in that society. The world can only become darker by the withdrawing of its lights and more corrupt through the removing of the salt scattered over it. The Word of God, however, tells us to be in the world, but not of the world. Philippians 2, 14 to 16. 
do all things without murmurings and disputings. That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Then 1 John 2, 15 to 17. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. God has left us here to be a reflection of his light to a very dark world. I thought this kind of interesting. I think we'll, we'll touch on it later, but we're not the light in and of ourselves. We're not creating our own light. We're merely reflecting it. Kind of interesting thought. Never really, kind of, never really had thought about that before. But we're really just our job is to reflect it. Think of John the Baptist. Jesus said of him, he was a burning and a shining light. You know, many came to know the Lord through the ministry of John. We should be lights as well, attracting people to the Lord. Matthew 5, 16, I, think that, I don't think that's on your sheet there. Um, it says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. Then John three twenty one. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be manifest, that they are wrought in God. <clears throat> we could ask ourselves the question, do people see Jesus in me? Subpoint B, we had light attracts, and now light starts with an R. Not, re not reflects. Have light attracts, but it also does this. Light repels. If you've ever taken a tour of a cavern or a cave where the lights were turned out, you've experienced total darkness. You literally cannot see your hand in front of your face. And this kind of darkness, one small light, can make a real difference. Before the days of electric lights in Victorian England, the streets were lined with gas lamps. Men called lamplighters had the job of going down the street and poking a lighted torch into the gas lamps, creating a warm glow that would dissipate the darkness. Charles Spurgeon of London observed these lamplighters and said that we Christians are to be lamplighters for God, poking holes in the darkness of this world. Now, God has commanded us to make a difference in the environment in which he's placed us. The song titled, Jesus Bids Us Shine, conveys the importance of that. Anybody know that one? Let's just sing it. Those of you who know it, those of you who don't, you, uh, just do your best. Jesus bids us shine with the clear, pure light, like a little candle burning in the night. In this world of darkness, we must shine, you in your small corner and I in mine. It's a pretty good little song. I don't know if it's in the hymn book. I, I don't remember for sure, but good. Um, Jesus bids us shine. Interesting uh, illustration here. It says, one of my college roommates, Rich, told me about the rats that ran rampant in the restaurant where he worked. <laughs> it sounds lovely. 
His story seemed beyond the, wor- the bounds of reality to me. So one night he offered to show me the rats. Because I grew up in Southern California and had never seen a rat running around our home, I thought this would be a great adventure. So Rich unlocked the back door of the restaurant and threw a piece of cold fried chicken into the corner of the stairwell. He then turned off the lights and waited a few moments. When he turned on the lights, I almost screamed in horror as I saw the rats scurrying for the cover of darkness. Even though that was almost three decades ago, my skin almost crawls at the thought of those vile creatures coming out of the darkness where they hid. Rats are something special. <laughs> Illustration. It says, it's interesting to note as one drives down the street and looks into a bar or saloon how dark they often are. Even today, men still love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Christ's light has the power to repel darkness, and he's given us the responsibility to reflect his light. Subpoint C, we had light attracts, light repels, and now light requires a, this starts with an S, source. Light requires a source, which is interesting. If we're to reflect the light of the Lord, we must understand the source for this light. Where does it come from? God himself is our source of light. James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow or turmoil. 1 John 1.5. This then is the message which we have heard of him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. When we walk with God, we have all the light that we need. Psalm 27, 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. With whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 36, 9. Uh, in thy light shall we see light. 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us, us from all sin. Acts 9 tells us of Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus, and the light that shined on him was so strong that he was stricken blind. That was the light of the Lord's presence. And then Acts 26, 13. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, above the brightness of the sun, shining round about me, and then which, and them which journeyed with me. When we walk with the Lord, some people will be drawn to the light, reflect, while others will hate it. Light always has the quality of being pleasurable to some and irritating to others. Interesting thought, think about. The closer we are to our Heavenly Father, the more we'll be like Him. There have been many Christians of yesteryear, some famous, many more unknown, who have allowed God to work in such a personal and powerful way and them that wherever they went, they radiated God's light. It was said of one circuit-riding preacher that he was a traveling lighthouse. The Holy Spirit used him to fuel a flame of righteousness for God. We must live in such a way that God is so real and personal to us that others will see his light reflected from our lives, even as the moon reflects the light of the sun. It's interesting thinking about, again, the moon doesn't create its own light, I don't believe. It's reflecting the sun. 
It's kind of like us, the um, reflecting God's light. We're not creating it. We're merely reflecting it. Another source of light for the Christian is God's Word. If the Word of God is truly part of us, it will shine through us. The longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119, focuses on the Word of God. Psalm 119, 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Psalm 119, 130. The entrance of thy words gives light. It giveth understanding unto the simple. Peter wrote of the word of God. This is in 2 Peter 119, the verses we've been looking at on Wednesday night. Speaking of the word of God, it's Peter as a light that shineth in a dark place. Till the day dawn and the day star rise. And we continue on there with verses we're memorizing there. It's the light of the scripture that shows us what we need to work on and change in our lives. And the light of the word of God reveals the darkness of our sin and illuminates the presence of God. It's vital then that we read, memorize, and meditate on the word of God so that the light of God can effectively shine both on us and through us. Around the year 1450, Johannes Gutenberg of Germany built the first printing press in the Western world. Gutenberg is most famous for the Gutenberg Bible, which today is one of the most valuable books ever printed. With the invention of the printing press, the Bible became far more accessible and less expensive than the scriptures which had been previously been hand-copied you know, by scribes and monks. And then when the Bible was, um, of course, there's a lot going on that time with translations of the Bible that were in our English language particularly. But when they were translated there from, of course, the ancient languages and the languages of the common people then, it was widely distributed. Of course, the printing press was a big part of that, of it able to be widely distributed. The translation and distribution of God's Word were the key factors in bringing about the Reformation it talks about here. Um, the spreading of the light of the Word of God would bring an end to the Dark Ages, as it was called. Conclusion. Now, the key aspect of both salt and light is that they make a difference in their surroundings. When our lives fulfill the basic functions of salt and light, we too will make a difference in the lives of others for the cause of Christ. God has given us the privilege and responsibility of representing Him. Let's allow God's Word to make a difference in us so that we can make a difference for God. There's, a couple, there's some study questions here. We'll look at, a, look at some of them here. Um, question number one is, what are some of the basic purposes of salt? Preserves. This protect kind of goes with preserves there. Purifies. Pleases. And prods. Yep. So how can a horse be prodded to drink water? And how does this relate to our role as salt? To thirst. You know, when we display the peace and joy of the Lord during times of trouble, others can be drawn to the source of our strength. Number three, what are the two sources of a Christian's life? God, obviously, ultimately, but then his 
revelation to us, His Word to that. Will everyone's response to light be positive? Well, not. Because some people are attracted, some are repelled. So who in your circle of influence needs you to be a salty Christian that reflects God's light? So that's some answer for yourself there. But who in your circle of influence needs you to be a salty Christian that reflects God's light? Next question. Using the basic functions of salt as described in this lesson as indicators, on a scale of 1 to 10, how salty of a Christian are you? Interesting question to think about for yourself. What are some, and kind of continues on here for some things to think about, what are some steps of action that you can take to fulfill the basic purposes of salt this week? And then are you faithfully reading, memorizing, and meditating on God's Word? And how can you incorporate these disciplines into your daily life? Because again, light feeding on it and getting it in us allows us to reflect it on that. So definitely, a, I think it was a, a challenging lesson to me in thinking about this. Any thoughts and things stood out to anybody? Cool t-shirt made that says, be salty and reflective and underneath, make the difference. <laughs> <laughs> we got get, uh, get t-shirts that have like that thing on it. Because if you realize it's like a light bulb with like a salt shaker on the bottom, with like salt coming out of it, it's actually a pretty cool graphic. We should get some t-shirts made like that. There you go. Anything else interesting? We just got these uh, salt and vinegar chips, and we're eating them the other day. We're eating them, eating them. <laughs> just how addictive, like, I know for me, when I'm, when I'm doing that, I'm supposed to do, I'm reading, like, I'm supposed to, I want more. Where if I'm not doing as well, I was thinking another correlation to the salt. I think, I think this is a statement. Says, the words that come out of our mouths are flavored by the condition of our hearts. Yep. Which is convicting more than, oh, yeah, that's a great statement. <laughs> it is. Anything else? Any other thoughts about anybody? Or? Anything? If you've ever been in a restaurant and as a family you bow your heads to pray and, and you look up and you see people looking at you, sometimes they'll come over and they'll say, I'm going to see somebody else praying, you know, another family praying over their food. And to me, that is a big example of being salt of life. Seems to me I haven't seen as much of that. Why do we do that? Why do you do it? You know, you think about it, oh, it's just what you always did, you know? But it is 
regardless of whatever, it is a good one, obviously, to be thankful, literally, for our food. But then also, it is an opportunity to be to those around us, to be salt and light to those around us. Obviously, you can do it just for show, but there's some good reasons with it. Last call. Any other thoughts before we close? Okay. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, I thank you for the lesson this evening and the, the challenge that it is of being salt and light in this world. Again, it, can, it definitely goes against our um, natural grain of not wanting to be different, of being, not being weird, you know, don't want to be thought of as odd, fit in. But you, know, you command us, you, know, you definitely were, were that. You definitely were different than the normal of the day. And you command us to be. You command us to be salt and light. Be salt in the sense of, um, of course, that it purifies, it preserves, protects, and it prods. And um, with light, again, that will be the light of the world, but in the sense of reflecting you as the true light, the real light of the world. That we're just reflecting you. And that, of course, light um, attracts, it repels the darkness back, and also it has a source, which is you, that help us to live our lives this week in the sense that um, people see a difference in us and the desire um, makes them thirsty for you, and then we can point them to you, who is the living water. They'll never thirst again. And so you give us safety as we go home this week and just remember and help us to be salt and light this week um, to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.